0: Arresting, it got our attention. The Lord saw. The Lord grieved. The Lord said that was the process that we saw in Genesis six one to eight. He, God Himself, brings uh, brings sanctions against all humanity, including the most vulnerable, the animals. The threat of extinction is not only inclusive of all living things, but also is geographically all encompassing. This was a worldwide destruction, and renewal. And so repeatedly, we noted in that section, on the earth highlights the divine intention to obliterate the living world that God had created by his own voice and of which he had formed with his own hands, Adam, Adam, dirt, out of the earth. Is there any greater pain suffered than parents who witness the loss of a child? Our passage provided a window into the heart of the troubled Creator. Our conclusion last week is sin destroys, but God delivers. There were two paths that led up to this destruction that was tracked right from the garden to that point in time, that point in history. There were two ways that diverged. God's way or man's way, and both of them produced a fruit that had lasting consequences, and both both of them presented a choice for the reader as we look at this divine narrative recorded history, what will we choose? God's way or man's way? Destruction or deliverance? Both of them with fruits and consequences. So last week as we ended our section, I was, my, I was hoping, uh, and I did go back and watch myself on double speed. You can actually understand me and double speed So, because I was speaking as slowly and concisely as I could last week. So if you want to hurry through that message on double speed, it's only about 30 minutes long. So go for that next time if you'd like. Um, you'll have to listen intently in some sections where I can start talking like that. But otherwise, double speed is good. And I listened to myself last week to make sure that I was clear uh, and copacetic. And what we noticed last time was simply this. The Bible has a clarity and a continuity that is meant to be interpreted in context. What we saw in context is that mankind sinned against God. God promised to provide a way of deliverance, but there's always destructive consequences from sin. And God brought those consequences to full justice on the antediluvian world and wiped out His creation in sorrow. But that section didn't end there, did it? It ended with this statement, but Noah found grace. And what we find in this masterful storytelling of Moses, a type of the future deliverer who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this new beginnings and this beginning story of mankind, he tells us uh, a a story that comes full circle. And so today, as we jump into fast forwarding through Pastor Stephen's three messages to chapter nine, what we're going to find is that this closes out the flood story, the flood narrative, but it's not surprising that as God has done all throughout the storytelling, he begins a section with a theological truth, right? He frames it. We call it bookends and he ends the section with a theological truth. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, one thing that we noted last time before we launched into and Pastor Stephen preached uh, sections uh, that I didn't talk about. But one time, one thing we noted is when Adam at the beginning, when Adam chose to willfully partake of that which God forbid, he chose to rebel against God. He chose to sin against God and say, you know what? I will believe the lie that this is good for me in this time. In my time, in my choice, he rejected God and he accepted himself. He accepted the word of the serpent. When he did that, he plunged all of mankind into sin. And thus, the dominion over the earth that was meant for God's chiefest creation, mankind, was submitted to and yielded to a lesser than God, but a greater than man the demonic influences and the echelon and the spirit of this world, Satan, who is called the serpent, the dragon, Apollyon, Beelzebub, the great deceiver, the father of lies, who when we preach through the book of Revelation, we find his end will be destruction, eternal damnation and suffering forever and ever and ever. Amen. But Satan's influence would be woefully felt to the present and what we saw in that very difficult passage that we dealt with is at the very least there were demonic uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6 we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against spiritual wickedness in high places against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world so there is an echelon of spiritual warfare that is gathered together. The Old Testament showcases that spiritual battle is real. We see that spiritual battle when Elijah, um, is, is his servant, is uh, contending or complaining that they're, they're going to be in big trouble, they're going to get wiped out, and God he prays and God opens the eyes of his servant and God, uh, he sees the servant sees God's army, the Lord of hosts' army on the mountains, that's ready to do engage the spiritual battle and his eyes are open to see a spiritual warfare that's happening. And what we saw last time, the very least in Genesis six, one to eight is that there is a spiritual influence behind this world system. And that spiritual influence wants to lead mankind in the path that their hearts are already bent toward destruction and self defamation. And that's exactly what we saw at the very least mankind as it's submitted and yielded to negative spiritual influences will continue to produce the fruit of sin and sin brings separation from god james puts it james james puts it this way that sin lust when it is conceived brings forth sin sin when it is finished brings forth death separation from god and so as we open up this section we remember we recount God's promise to Noah. Though the flood narration is, is, is a large section of scripture, and though it is sad and, and grieving to both God and us as the reader, we find that it is it is brightened by the promise that Noah found grace. In other words, the all-encompassing nature of sin and its destruction also is surrounded by the all-encompassing loving, super abounding grace of God. Where God would say, I will send a seed. He would fulfill that promise from Seth, right? To Noah. So Adam to Seth to Enoch to Noah and through Noah's generation. So full circle. So on April 23rd, 2023, Pastor Stephen Introduced the flood narrative, and he preached what I would consider to be a masterful message on the theological content and implications of the flood. I don't think he's in here today, so I can embarrass him. That's perfect. I think he's, oh good, he's out in the lobby. He can hear me. Oh man, Uh, that was one of the best messages I've heard Pastor Stephen preach. It was a phenomenal message. By the way, you can listen to that at two times the speed as well. Um, but he gets a little bit clippy, you know, so be careful there. Maybe one and three-quarter speed, and you can hear him preach that message again as well. But as you look at that message, he preached to us a a narrative and a a master theological message that taught us this. God's judgment is total and all-encompassing. It's just and it is sure. That was the point of the first part of his message on April 23rd. And here's the second part that is equally true in the text that was, at, that was presented, that God's salvation is gracious and special and just and sure. The implication from the text and the application that the flood narrative started with is actually the Holy Spirit's main point that concludes this section today as well. As we've stated already, there's God's way and there's man's way. Both have consequences. Both of those ways are available to all mankind. Only one way will lead to eternal life with God and blessing. The other way leads to eternal death or separation from God. The consequences of man's choice are, uh, consequence of man's choice is dire. And what we said last time, God means what he says. And we posed this question that will introduce our text today. Will you trust God? So as we look at the text today, I'm going to go back and tell you what the title of the message is. Eternal death or eternal deliverance come to the same door. That's the title of today's message. Eternal death or eternal deliverance come to the same door. You say, wait a second, preacher. Isn't that sort of what the flood narrative was about? Bingo. You're right. Yes, it was. And, And of course, literally... They came to a door. God brought animals two by two to a door. God invited all mankind that was living on the face of the earth uh, to come through a door, a door of a literal boat that was to uh, save mankind and animal kind. And yet only Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, only eight souls took God up on his offer and by faith stepped through that door. And then God shut the door. So the the title of this message is Pithy, and it has a point. Eternal death or eternal deliverance come to the same door. One of them goes through the door, and one of them walks away from the door. And as this this story concludes in chapter 9, the entire narrative of the flood, the theological principles that Pastor Stephen preached on April 23rd, come right back to the forefront of this discussion. And that is simply this. Judgment is total and all-encompassing. It's just and it's sure. And God's salvation is gracious and special, and it, too, is just and sure. Now, I've got a a way to say that here as we read the text in a moment. And the theme, I believe, of this section of Scripture is this. The all-encompassing consequences of sin contrasted with God's unrelenting grace. The text showcases the all-encompassing consequences of sin and God's unrelenting grace. You say, Pastor, how does the text do that? And as you know, you've asked the right question. So let's look at the text and answer that question, shall we? Let's go ahead and read this section of Scripture, And this is, like I've said uh, many times as I preach, probably one of the most important parts of the message because it's God's holy word that we're listening to, not my word. So let's look at chapter 9, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. And here's what God's word says. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their brothers' shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Now that begins a new section, but we're going to end with that as well. As a book ends what we're talking about. May the Lord add a blessing to the portion of his word. Let's pray and ask for understanding of this text. Father, we ask your rich goodness to be poured out upon us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand your truth. Help me to be clear and, and concise to, to point out the truths, the two truths today that we will see in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this text clearly showcases these two realities, the all-encompassing consequences of sin. And God's unrelenting grace. And the thing that we will take away from this, the thing you'll hear me say most often throughout the text, is simply this. You and I must choose God's way, that is a way of grace, because the way of sin destroys, but the way of grace saves. You and I must choose God's way, that is the way of grace, because the way of sin destroys, but the way of grace saves. Friends, as we look at the text, we're going to see today simply uh, two divisions. We'll see that sin brings total and complete and utter destruction by division, but God brings restoration by grace. But Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. Sin brought division. God brought grace. The text reveals this truth through theological connection. And so first today we're going to see that sin's destruction is by division. Sin's destruction is by division. There's a theological connecting point here and we're going to see this all the way through the the text that we have just read. So follow me as I'm going to mark it. Uh, This is a disproportionate outline today. I've got two main points. Point number one is this one. It's got a few subpoints, and point number two has no subpoints because the text doesn't have any. Okay. So from a homiletical standpoint, bad writing from a biblical standpoint, I hope it's spot on today. So as we look at the context in the text, let me first sort of connect and congeal this together. Look with me again at verse 18. Now the sons of Noah, this is connecting a Noah who is antediluvian pre-flood. The sons of Noah, when were they born? Before God's destruction. Why were they saved? Because of God's grace. Sin brings destruction by division. God brings grace that leads to salvation. So Noah's sons are saved because Noah and his sons and their wives stepped out by faith out of their generation and they chose to believe God and walk through the open door that was before them in the ark. And so as Pastor Stephen preached several weeks ago, he offered that same reality to each and every one of us and compared the generation of Noah to the generation of today like Peter does and like Jude does. There is an open door before you and there is one who is standing at the door And he is knocking. He is ready to come in to you and dine with you. He is ready to have a relationship with you. He is ready to deliver you. His name, friends, is Jesus. And he is the way, truth, and life. And as we talked about at the very beginning, from the title of this message to the present, eternal death or eternal deliverance, come to the same door. Only one of them will go through the door. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheepfold. If any man comes to the Father, he must come through me. And so do not miss this clarion call as this section of Scripture closes and moves into the next section that we must By the grace of God, choose God's way of grace because the way of sin destroys and the way of grace saves. Now, you say, how does this really connect? Notice again, Noah and his sons went out of the ark. So it's connected to the ark was the deliverance method from a real earthly destruction. And notice it says, uh, those who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Japheth Here's this insertion here. That is the, the hook to chapter 10. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Okay. okay. Uh, we just heard heard about Shem, Ham and Japheth, right? And um, all of a sudden we have Ham's fourthborn Canaan mentioned. It's just it's just kind of like slaps you in the face, like this seems out of place. Well, it's not out of place, it's in the right place to draw your attention to chapter 10, verse 1 and following. And the instruction chapter 10, I'm connecting that because this theological bridge is going to help me build this foundation for next sermon and help you understand how this connects all the way back to Adam. So he goes on to say, um, then these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was populated. So, Pastor Stephen, last week, no, not last week, the week before last, preached on this uh, idea of dominion or repopulation of the earth. Uh, The dominion command was not explicitly stated again, but it was implicitly applied or implied that mankind would then have dominion as they populate the earth. There were some transitional ideas or changes there. Uh, Life would be required for a life. Um, animals would, would now be food when they weren't food before. Um, and in order to make them food, you would have to sacrifice them and shed their blood in order to partake of them. Blood would be shed. And now this bloody world would be covered by blood. Death upon death upon death upon death upon death. And this section ends, and Noah died. This connection of Noah's death connects into chapter 4 and the line of Seth. Do you remember that? These are the generations of, and he died. These are generations of, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. Wait, what was it? Wait for it. He walked with God and he was not. And then he died, he died, he died, he died. And then Noah died. So the connection here is sin always brings what? Death. Sin results in death. It's inescapable. It's imminent. It is passed upon all men, for all have sinned. There is no exception, friend, except Jesus. And so as we look at the text, let's talk about a couple of things here. All right? Why is this, how does this connect to Adam? Well, we know through the genealogies we've already seen. We had Adam. The Cain and Abel incident was was disgusting and sad. It was there to showcase that Cain Followed the way of man and death. And so Seth replaces Cain. Seth then has a a godly heritage. Seth eventually produces Noah or his heritage in his line. But let's see the parallels. These are intentional, purposeful parallels in the story. I don't want you to miss them. Um, I had to study hard to get to them just because Hebrew is not my native language. Right? Right? Uh, so they're buried in the verbs here, but let me show you what they are. Alright? So this, this telling of the story, it opens up um, with Noah's drunkenness, which will result in the patriarch's invocation for a curse and a blessing. You saw that, right? He's drunk, sin, sin, he sins, his son sins against him. There's a curse and a blessing. This recalls the language of the world before the flood, especially Adam's story, right? Adam sins, there's a curse and a blessing. Do you see that? Please, somebody, nod. Do you see that? Adam sins, there's a curse and a blessing. Okay? Curse on the earth, curse on birth, curse on the ground, curse on mankind. Blessing. God's going to send a seed that's going to crush the serpent's head and he's going to deliver you. Same thing. Why is it the same thing? Because sin always destroys. Noah sins, he destroys. You say, this is really sad. Yes, it is. Because last week, uh, Pastor Stephen preached a great message. It ended with them basking in the glorious rays of the rainbow and the multifaceted 65 colors that we can only see a few of with our naked eye. And all surrounded this just promise of God to never destroy the earth. And you can almost envision, you know, these eight people holding hands together as they're walking off the ark and the animals flowing out the door and just this beautiful serene picture of the birds flying through the purple hues of the orange hues of the rainbow. And there they are. Ah. Glory, the yep, the rainbow, God's promises, blessings. This is how we left. And then Noah gets drunk. <laughs> Where where's the connection? <laughs> Noah is just like Adam, who is his great 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 great. I can't remember how many generations. Ten, I think. Grandfather. He sinned. He chose to disobey. God's law. And sin always destroys. But God's grace always delivers. And so as we see in the flood story, the creation of the garden accounts are re-represented. They're re-presented, especially in verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, the pastor already preached on. So as to picture Noah as the second Adam. So Noah is pictured here as the second Adam. I know I'm, I'm going to spend a disproportionate time in the first part. Hang with me. This is important. Uh, what we find is the flood story and the creation of the garden accounts are, in, are are infused together on purpose. Noah becomes the second Adam. He's the father of the post-Diluvian world. In the com- concluding episode, the, the parallels are unmistakable. Listen to some of them. Noah and Adam share in the same profession. How is Noah introduced here? It says Noah became a farmer. Literally, this means he tilled the ground. He was a tiller of the earth. Now the word earth is a different word for Adam. That's dust. Okay? Dirt. It's, it's meant to be a different word. He became a cultivator of the ground. What was Adam's profession? He was a cultivator of the ground. What was Abel's profession? He was a cultivator of the ground. Presumably, uh, uh, or excuse me, Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So these early farmers, these early uh, uh Successors of mankind, and so they're meant to be linked together. Okay, so they—they they, not only do they share the same profession, but they share the same language of the curse and the blessing. As I mentioned again, they're hurt, they're heard hurt again. Both experience the shame of nakedness. Do you remember that Adam and Eve sin? They knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. Uh, Noah sins. By the way, um, the verb here in the Hebrew, um, let me just look back so I'm not mistaking it for you. But it says, Noah became a, uh, began to be a farmer. He planted a vineyard. Then he drank the wine and was drunk and, it, and became uncovered in his tent. That's a really weird way to translate that. It, it, probably the, the way that Hebrew um, is meant, it literally says, and, and Noah uncovered himself in his tent. That's, that's literally what it says. He got so intoxicated, so inebriated that he, like so many people who do succumb to the full intoxication of alcohol, didn't even have a clue, didn't know what he was doing. He just stripped himself and became naked and he passed out. This was a personal sin that Noah committed, drunkenness to the point of shame. And there's a connection with Adam, okay? Also, we, just like Adam, Noah's transgressions resulted in familial strife among his descendants that resulted in fratricide for Adam's sons. That's a real word. You can look it up. You can add it to your dictionary. Adam's sons killed, uh, one killed the other. And in the same way, there's animosity between the sons of Noah. And that animosity continues till today. Because sin always destroys and separates. And there's a connection between Adam and Noah. Noah becomes another Adam. There's slavery for Noah's youngest son, there are many allusions to the garden sin, the tree of knowledge. Notice, for example, uh, when we got to chapter two, nine and chapter three, verse three and three, verse eight, we noticed that there was in the middle of the garden, the Hebrew verb there in the translated in the middle of is repeated in chapter nine, verse 21, where it says, uh, and Noah, um, and drank of the wine and was drunk and he became uncovered in his tent. The verb there is in the middle of his tent. It's the same word in the middle of the garden. In the middle of his tent, same Hebrew verb. It's meant to show a clear connection. Also, we saw in the garden on the first sin, the woman saw that the, the fruit was good to look upon, right? We find that Ham saw his father's nakedness. And instead of acting properly and appropriately, he went and he told his brothers, though his brothers did not see Adam and Eve Knew they were naked. Noah knew what his youngest son had done. Same verb. Same verb. Okay? Uh, and God asked, Who told you that you were naked? In chapter 3, verse 1. And Ham told his brothers. Same verb. Clear parallels in the story. Isn't that a masterful storytelling? Now, if you were, you were reading this in, in Hebrew, you would see that really clearly. Unfortunately, we don't read Hebrew. And so we have to connect those dots. But the connection is there on purpose. And so the point here is Noah is the second Adam, both as a recipient of divine blessing and as a father of a corrupt seed. That's really important for us to connect. You see, sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Sin divides, separates. And here, sin's destruction is always by division. Listen, our world is full of hate today, is it not? Brother is against brother. Man is against man. Our world is saturated with violence. Slavery, believe it or not, is rife all over the world, mostly now sexual slavery, sad to say. And with the advent of the internet, more and more and more people are enchained to that Terrible slavery of sin where real people are really hurt. Mankind is at its at odds and at division and it is the spirit of the enemy, the wicked one, who wants to divide God's greatest creation, mankind, and he wants to destroy and he wants to tear apart because that's all he can do. He cannot create. Only God can create. Satan does not bring together, he always tears apart. And if he does bring together, he's only bringing together to tear apart man from God. When he brings together the world under one world government and one world system with one world financier and one world leader, it will be for the point of shaking their fist in the face of God in anger and throwing off what they consider to be the chains of a good and loving God who's provided eternal deliverance and wants a special relationship with them. And Satan will use mankind like he did pre-flood to divide them from God. Sin Always destroys and brings division. So these two verses then subtly shift the narrative's eye from Noah to the sons and their role in the future progress of God's blessing for humanity. Verses 18 and 19 bring an end to the flood account and prepare the way for what we call the table of nations that we'll discuss in chapter 10. But it's not redundant. By virtue of the allusion to the ark and their anticipation of Noah's curse against Ham or Canaan. The naming of the sons in the stock formula, Shem, Ham, and Japheth occur five times in close proximity in this text. Uh, Repeating the names of the sons backwards in chapter 7, which speaks of them by name entering the ark with their wives. And then looks ahead to chapters 10 and 11, which recall how their descendants or their nations are scattered all over the face of the earth. So Noah's sons are either listed by name or simply as sons are a constant feature of the narrative. In this concluding element of the flood account, it's appropriate that they should occupy our attention as the reader uh, because the focus of this salvific act as well as the covenant has been ultimately toward future generations. And so what we find here is sin's destruction is always by division. Now, I'm going to say this once because I'm going to forget to say it. I know I will. But when we get into the next Toledoth, you're going to find in the next sections of of Genesis and the final sections, the final five components, you're going to find a connection to the Shemites. Okay? The Shemites are going to be at odds with the Canaanites. That's the big connection in this text. And we'll see that this division between brothers that now exists today is part of Satan's master plan to keep God's people from God. But God's grace will superabound if we choose God's way. And what we find is you must choose God's way of grace because the way of sin destroys And sin always destroys by dividing. It divides brother against brother, sister against sister, mother against father, father against children. Satan's tactics have not changed. And division is a part of his master plan. And so what I'm going to say is this. You'll find the word Canaan or Canaanite will show up 35 times in the last sections of Genesis. And so that Cain, uh, excuse me, the the Canaanites or Canaan and the land of Canaan becomes synonymous with that which is antagonistic to God, with idol worship, sensuality and sexuality and man's way versus God's way. And so the Shemites, uh, God's people are committed or are positioned against the Canaanites, which are going Cain's way, although they aren't of Cain, they're of Canaan. And that's part of the story, the narrative that gets connected, and we'll, we'll bridge that later. So let's let's kind of go through this section. If I told you sin's destruction is by division, then you might ask the question, well, how does that showcase itself? Well, first of all, Noah's drunkenness resulted in division, right? Verses 20 to 24 tell Noah's in, uh, inebriation and ham's transgression against his father. As a consequence, Noah utters an invocation, which is rendered in the poetic verse. In fact the one and only primary progenitor that survived the flood, and he lived for 950 years. This is the one and only time he even speaks post-flood. And it is kind of a last will and testament. And so let's look at it again. He goes, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants. He shall be his, uh, to his brethren. Uh, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. This is all that Noah says, post-flood. This is the only, these are the only recorded words of Noah. And so what we find is Noah's drunkenness resulted in division, and even pronounced division among his brothers. Now listen, we are not, not going to preach a message on drunkenness, but I can tell you drunkenness is the most destructive event, even in modern history. Uh, I, I can tell you that that drunkenness causes suffering and pain. I, I have had a relative that killed someone with a car because of his drunkenness. I have had a relative who died of excessive alcoholism was an alcoholic and drank herself to death. Drunkenness divides and destroys. And here Noah became drunk. Now some would try to say, well, you know, he just didn't know the intoxication. The man was 650 years old. You telling me he'd never imbibed once in 650 years? With all of the collective knowledge of human history from Adam to the present that he carried on the ark with him, and that he knew how to cultivate a vino, grapes to make wine, that he didn't know what the results of that be. Bah humbug. He knew, and he chose to overindulge. He chose to overindulge so much that he stripped himself of his clothes and in shamefulness became naked. He sinned. His drunkenness resulted in division. Listen, again, this is not an endemic against alcohol. It's an endemic against drunkenness. Drunkenness divides. And you know what? I can guarantee you Noah had no intention of causing division in his family. It is not like he decided, you know what? I'm going to get drunk today, and I'm going to ruin the progenitors of earth, just like Adam did. You know, that 120 years that I preached righteousness and found favor in God's eyes, I'm just going to kind of kill that in one act. No big deal. You know, a little bit of vino, right? No, he didn't think that. There's no way he did. The text doesn't tell us that, but it it, it would be a silly thing to expect Noah to be like, yeah, I'm going to ruin my family forever and ever and ever. But his choice did divide because sin always divides. And and can I tell you, friend, if you're in here and you're struggling with addiction to alcohol, God can give you victory over that. God's grace is super abundant. He can give you hope and help, and that help can come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He can save you and wash you and cleanse you and give you an opportunity to say no to sin and yes to God. You can can enjoy what God richly gave man to enjoy without the sin of drunkenness. Friends, there is hope in Christ. There's always hope in Christ. But sin divides. Noah's drunkenness resulted in division. Ham's shamefulness resulted in division. I'm not going to lie to you. There There are a lot of interesting things that are said here, but let me finish this up. Um, let me go back. I, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. The, these words that Noah speaks, they're in effect his last will and testament, as I mentioned. The subsequent verses report his death, bringing an end to the ancient Sethite lineage, with the same fateful refrain, then he died. So conversely, in the flood narrative, the Lord forewarns, instructs, assures, blesses, and makes covenant with Noah. But in the final episode, we don't hear a divine word. Although this passage does not condemn Noah's intoxication, the abrupt silence of God suggests that all is not well between heaven and earth. We will see this played out divisively in the Tower of Babel episode in chapter 11, where heaven has the last word for Noah's offspring. So be sure drunkenness or sin results in division, always. Now, Ham's shamefulness results in division. I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth here. There are a lot of commentators that want to read into this, and I, I don't want to, I, I'm not this. Please forgive me, parents. I'm be, being careful as I say this, okay? But there are some interpretations of this passage that would suggest that Ham's sin was more than just he saw and then he went and told his his siblings what he saw okay Um, there's an implication that he may have participated in some kind of sexual act that was uh, egregious there is also an implication um, that he might have even um, he might have even taken advantage of his father in the sense that Uh, He may have taken the ability of his father to continue to progenerate. And that's the the best way I can put it without being blunt. And the reason that's suggested is mostly an argument from silence, but notice how many sons are clearly mentioned that, that Noah has in the text. Three. Did you know that Canaan is Ham's fourth son? So the implication theologically then would be maybe Ham took away his father's ability to have sons. Now, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that those two things are suggested by theologians. Since the story doesn't say it, I think the clarity here is that Ham shamefully told about his father's sin In a braggadocious way and showed his indiscretion, lack of discernment, his shame and dishonoring of his parent, and thus brought division on himself and with his brothers. I think that is the clearest interpretation. It's kind of like going back to chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. There's lots of little offshoots here we could go, but the scripture clearly teaches there was a clear division And Ham's shamefulness, what we clearly read, it says here, Noah became a farmer, he drank, he uncovered himself. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers. Noah wakes up, he knew that his younger brother had done to him, and he curses him. What what does in contrast to his other two brothers do? His other two brothers make sure not to see the nakedness of their father, not to participate in the shame of his drunkenness. And by the way, the, the phrase here, when it says... Uh, blah blah The nakedness. No new. Where's it go? Oh, here we go. Verse twenty-three. But Shem and Japheth took a garment. Okay. Actually, the Hebrew word has the definite article. This could be translated: They took the garment. Well, you say, what's the difference? It means that they, when Ham went, it's this is this is what I think. Okay. This is my clearest. This is to not to stray from the. Perhaps Sodomite, Sodomite Act or the other Castration Act, those two ideas. But this is more of the idea than that Ham took his father's garment, walked out of the tent and said, look what's going on in the tent, boys. And they took the garment, grabbed it, walked backwards in reverence and respect to their father and covered their father with the garment. How could they cover him with the garment and not see him if Ham brought the garment to them? Are you tracking? I think that's the implication of the text. Why? Because sin always divides. Grace always delivers. The brothers were giving their dad grace. Noah had found grace. Listen, this is a a bit of a theological application here that some of you might feel is a stretch. I don't think it's far removed from the text. How many of us have been shamed by a family member's sin? Maybe it's a close family member. Maybe it is a father or a mother. And that has shaped our lives. Maybe our thinking, maybe the way we've we've, um, talked about them or to them, And yet as believers, we want others to be gracious toward us, but we are embittered toward the person who sinned against us. Can I make a a general plea here, friend? God gives grace. If we're to follow God's way, we must, by the grace and mercy of God, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, be gracious to those who've gone before us in sin. Be gracious. What did Jesus say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, can you truly say as a believer that you love your pastor? If you go and you talk negatively about your pastor and you gossip or backbite about his family, can you truly say you love him and his family? If your actions show otherwise... Now, the reason why I picked on pastors because you all pour out love on me lavishly. I thought that was a safe illustration. Okay, That's why I brought that up. I'm not thinking of anybody here. But I can tell you this. Let me jump into the, the hot seat and say, do you do that about the person who's egregiously sinned against you? Do you cover that with grace? Oh, I'm not saying that you you go out of your way to try to build a relationship if relationship and trust has been broken. I just mean in the way we communicate. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Apparently, the scripture tells us that when Moses died and God uh, entombed him somewhere on the mount before the promised land, the scripture tells us that there was a spiritual argument between Michael the archangel, the defender of Israel, and Satan, Apollyon, the destroyer, the the great dragon. And Michael the archangel, who was God's favored servant and had the right to take God's deliverer, Moses, and take his remains so they wouldn't be uh, desecrated. And Satan wanted to desecrate those remains. Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuke you. That's as far as he went. Sometimes we need to stop our tongue from saying evil about people that have sinned. We need to be gracious. We need to show the love of God. We need to live our lives in a way that displays we are recipients of great, superabundant grace. And we want by the grace and mercy of God to, to be conduits of that grace for others. Now, I'm not going to tell you that there haven't been times where I personally Have had to go and ask people to forgive me, my family and otherwise, for having a a bad mouth, for having a bitter tongue, for being a a gossip, right? Have you ever done that before? Please tell me I'm not on an island unto myself this morning. I'm feeling a little isolated out here. Have you ever had to ask for forgiveness for being bad with your mouth? Friends, when we ask forgiveness, when we give forgiveness, we showcase and manifest the love and the grace of God. Japheth and Shem gave grace to their father. That's what they did. They showcased it by taking the garment from their brother and walking in the tent and not looking up their father's nakedness and shamefulness and covering it just like God had covered them with His grace by letting them into His ark and by closing the door and protecting them from the destruction on the earth that they actually deserved. Friends, God has covered you with his grace if you're in Christ. You and I deserve eternal separation from God, but we have been graciously placed into Jesus. Let us let our words be seasoned with grace to other believers and even those who don't believe. Because maybe a word of compassion is what they need to come to the compassionate Savior. Maybe they need to see that you're different. You don't divide. Because sin divides, but grace restores. That's clear in this text. So, um, what we see here about Sam, uh, ha- Sam Ham's shamefulness, Ham's shamefulness, right? Ham's shamefulness resulted in division. Don't spit that water out. Uh, division destroyed Ham's family line. That's what we see in verses 24 to 7. His division, his choice, his line was destroyed, denigrated, and placed into servitude to the present. That's what we see. That was the result or the consequence of his sin. We found that division divided Noah's descendants. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth were now at odds with one another over the course of time. And so that leads me to this truth. We've now, we've seen how sin destroys through division. Now let's see God's restoration by grace. And I already alluded to it, but that's the second and final point. And guess what? I only have one more paragraph left. Yay! God's restoration comes by God's grace. And that's found in chapter 10, verse 1, and also all the other sections that we just talked about. What happens here? Well, what happened when when Adam sinned and fell and God said, I'm going to crush the serpent's head, but, but the heel is going to be bruised. Adam's generation successfully led to the fact that all of the, of the uh, intents and thoughts of mankind were only evil continually. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and God relented. He showed his sorrow that he had made man, and God said, I will wipe out every living thing, all nefesh from the face of the planet, whether it be bird or beast, whether it be mankind, but I will, by grace, provide a way of escape. God restores by grace. And so what we see is this restoration comes, this, the way this passage ends links to the way chapter 10 begins. God's grace is manifest in the fact that Noah was still given an inheritor in his image, who would carry the promised seed of blessing to crush the serpent's head. A son of Adam, a son of Enoch, a son of Seth, a son of Noah, his name is Shem. We're going to see later on that the son Shem would produce a a, a progeny uh, named Terah. And Terah would have a son named Abram. And Abram would take the blessing of God and his name would be changed to Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham would have a couple of sons. Ishmael, not of the promise. Ishmael of his own work, his own way. But he would have a son, Isaac, the promised son. Isaac would also have a son, Jacob, boy was he a story in his own right. And Jacob would produce, his name would be changed to Yisrael, Israel. And Israel would produce twelve tribes that would nationalistically become a people of God. And of one of those tribes, Judah, would come a scepter, a ruler. That ruler would then be years, hundreds of years later, be pronounced as a son of David, David, a son of David. And David, who is the rightful heir, who would never have a child who wouldn't be ruler. His, his child would be ruler for all eternity. That child's name would be Yeshua, Jesus. And those lineages are traced in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, one through the line of David, uh, through Mary, and the other through the line of Joseph, also through David. But David's rightful son, Solomon, and Mary is the inheritor there. Joseph's rightful line, uh, I'm, I flipped that. Joseph's rightful line is through David, but a son of David couldn't rule because of Jeroboam and Rehoboam's sins. And so there was a bypass of that through the adoption into that side from Mary's side. It's convoluted and complicated but clear in Scripture that Jesus would be the rightful ruler of the children of Israel through the line of David, through the line of Judah, as promised to God through Isaac, through Jacob, through Isaac, through Abraham, or Abraham, Abram, through Noah or Shem, through Noah, through Seth, through Enoch, through Noah, through Seth through Enoch, through, wait, I flipped those. Enoch, then Seth, then Adam. This is God's way to deliver. God restores by grace. So what we find then is this in conclusion. We saw today that you and I must choose God's way of grace because the way of sin destroys. Noah's death marked the end of the antediluvian era, but the pervasiveness of sin in mankind remains. God will not walk and talk with mankind again until he sends his deliverer, Jesus. All who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame, but will have eternal life. Therefore, you and I must choose God's way of grace, because the way of sin destroys, but God's way of grace saves. Let me close with this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not the gift, uh, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or brag. You see, friends, God is offering grace freely to you and to me today. We can be recipients of grace like Noah, and like Noah who was uh, like Adam who received both the blessing and the curses, and who himself was a flawed, sinful human. Just like Noah, our progenitor, we are flawed, sinful humans. We cannot escape sin. We can't overcome sin. No matter what we do, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, not even one. We've all together become sinful. We are totally depraved. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Above all else, There's no surpassing or overcoming our sin nature. We need a deliverer. We need God's grace. And so friends, sin divides, but grace restores. Will you receive God's gracious gift of salvation? Will you put yourself by faith and through repentance in Jesus Christ receiving the gift of eternal life? that gracious salvation is offered freely to all who believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the authority, the right to become the sons or the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, friends, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because of God's grace, you and I can present our flawed, sinful, atrocious, separated from God, filthy and totally unclean selves in the presence of a thrice holy God. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we're some kind of special person, but because Jesus is special. Jesus offers grace. And when we receive Jesus, we get God's grace. And grace restores. And oh, don't we need it? And then when we are restored to God's presence by his grace, then our lives should be typified by grace. Oh, don't turn back to the divider the deceiver. Don't let our mouths, our tongues uh, be used as weapons of the enemy. Let's not spew hate and venom on other mankind, of people saved or lost with with a correct worldview or a wrong worldview. Let us be men and women that share grace. The grace of God that surpasses all comes to us in the person of Jesus. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Are you following him? Are you speaking with grace? Are you loving others by grace? Friends, we all need God's help to do that, don't we? (laughs) I hope I'm not the only one. I need to yield my tongue to God's grace. Don't don't you? May may God help us today. You must choose God's way of grace because the way of sin destroys, but the way of grace saves. Father, we thank you.